0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning y'all. How's everybody doing today? 7 people are doing great. Everyone else is sleepy like me. Hey, uh, grab your Bibles. Turn, if you would, to the book of Luke. Um, also, I need you to go to Psalm 33 to open up. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high, wave it around, and we will make sure that you get one of these so you can track along with us. That is Luke chapter 8 and Psalm 33, is where we're going to be this morning. Um, while you're doing that, a um, couple of announcements. Easter's coming up. Can you guys believe that? Like Easter's, it's March. Isn't that crazy? Seems like it was just Christmas. Now it's March already, but Easter's coming up. And so if you or your child are interested in being baptized, uh, we would like to hear from you. If you'd fill out the flyer that was probably handed to you or stop by the Connect Desk. Um, We'd like to have a chat with you about that. Um, That's Milestone 2 also, for those of you that are in the Milestones program. So parents, make sure you uh, check into that. And if you're not aware of our Milestone program, you're definitely going to want to stop by the Connect Desk and grab one of the little flyers so you can learn a little more about that. Um, so that would be great. Also, man camp is coming up. Registration is open right now. It's early bird pricing of 135 bucks. That is April 27th through the 29th. And we have Ray Ortland with us this year, which if you don't know who that is, like we got super lucky to get Ray Ortland. Like this guy is insanely amazing. And, uh, um, Me and the other Oregon pastors here in Acts 29 were kind of like, once he signed, we just kept waiting for him to go, oh yeah, I can't make it after all, and and now he's actually coming. We're like, wow, kind of surprised. So um, we're really, really stoked about that. His topic this year is going to be on, uh, I think the title is something like, uh, Christianity is for people that are bad at Christianity, So just a really, really good time to focus on the gospel and spend some time with our Acts 29 brothers from all over the Pacific Northwest. Um, This whole man camp thing's kind of blowing up. There's 17 different churches coming this year, so it's going to be a great, great time. And if you've never been to Washington Family Ranch, that place is insane, like go-kart tracks and zip lines and all kinds of crazy stuff. So guys, make sure you get signed up. Come with me on that. That's going to be April 27th through the 29th. Uh, sign up online at mancamppnw for pacificnorthwest.com. Um, the rest of you, if you would, grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 8 we're going to be this morning, as well as Psalm 33. And we're going to start, actually, in Psalm 33. And I'm not going to have you stand with me this morning, just because there's a lot that we're going to read together. And uh, I'm going to have grace on ya, grace for you on that. Um, but I want to start out in Psalm chapter 33. Psalm 33. In, in my Bible, it's got a little paraphrase subtitle that says, The Steadfast Love of the Lord. That's the subtitle. I think it's a bad title. I mean, it's a good title in that we love the steadfast love of God, and that phrase does appear a couple of times in this particular psalm, but I don't think that's really the emphasis. I don't think the purpose of this psalm was that we might understand the width, breadth, depth of God's love for us. I think it was that we would understand the width, breadth, depth of God's majesty and power and might and just how infinite he is. So as we read Psalm 33, let's first open up in a word of prayer and then look at that very psalm because it sets a context I want to have in our background as we look in Luke today. Father, we bow before you this morning and just ask, Lord, that we would again learn more about how incredible you are how majestic you are how powerful you are how mighty you are how good and loving you are i pray god that that our sense of awe would be renewed or would grow and i pray god that as the text is going to tell us this morning that we would be careful how we hear you attentive to your will not here to be entertained or to check off something else on our religious to do list, but may we understand that we hold before us the very words of the living God. May you speak to your people. May you prepare our soul even now for what you'd have us do, and then may you empower us by your Spirit to do that which you call us to. So, Lord, we do pray this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, my rock. My King, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Psalm 33 1 says this Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise benefits the upright. In other words, for the righteous people, praise befits you. It's fitting that righteous people praise the Lord. And this is really what I think this psalm is about. At the very beginning of the psalm and at the very end of the psalm, it's bookended by this call to praise and call to worship. But everything that takes place in the middle is really just lays out why God is worthy of our praise and our attention. He goes on and says, verse 2, "...give thanks to the Lord with a lyre, make melody to him with a harp of ten strings." Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. God is worthy of our praise. Why? For he is good. He is just. He is righteous. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth feel, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Why should we worship the Lord? Because he is the powerful and majestic creator. And even the context of this, just a little interesting thing to be aware of, like for the Jewish people and for the the ancient uh, Middle Eastern people of that day, the sea was the enemy. The ocean was an enemy. It was a mystery in in all of its symbolism and usage. It, It was the unknown. It was fearful. It was dangerous. It was not our friend. And here the text says, by the way, God takes that enemy. He just puts it in the cupboard. He's majestic, he's powerful, he's in control of all things. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Why is God worthy of worship? Because he is sovereign over all people, over all kingdoms. It says the plans of people, no matter how mighty the nation may be, can never thwart God's plans. For God's plans will frustrate the plans of the people. But yet God's plans himself will stand forever. He is sovereign over even the mightiest kingdoms of this world and worthy of our praise. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds... The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Why is the Lord worthy of worship? Because he is sovereign over not just the nations, over not just the kingdoms, but the individuals. And he is omniscient and omnipresent. He is everywhere. He sees us all. He knows us all. He fashions the heart of us all. And then finally, he saves us all. He goes on in verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and may keep them alive in famine. Oh, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O oh Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. This is a powerful and majestic psalm. And the intent as he writes, remember this is a song. And songs are intended to evoke emotion, to stir something up in us. And and the psalmist in this time, he's, he's writing to stir up our emotions, to understand, to help us remember, do you realize who this God is that we serve? Do you realize how strong and powerful he is? Israel or the church, have you grown complacent and kind of forgotten and lost your sense of awe? Have you been so familiar with God for so long that you forget what he really did? Are their creation accounts just so normal to you after years of Sunday school lessons and years of morning devotions that you forget the incredible power that he could just speak and everything we knew was created? God is amazing. And we should be in awe of him. We should understand at all times. We should be reminded who he is lest we grow comfortable with him and forget even why we're here. And as Jesus is going to go on to tell us this morning, and be careful how we hear him. Be careful how we hear him because it could cost you. Take a look at Luke verse 8. We see a great picture of this same God. Starting in verse 22, it says this. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water to obey him? This painting here that's up on the screen, I actually have this uh, framed and hanging in my office above the couch. Um, I bought this years ago because couples would come in or people would come in seeking counsel. And I would hear all these stories about these incredible storms that people were going through. And I just thought this is a fitting and powerful and comforting picture of where Jesus calms this storm. And and even thinking the symbolism of it as people would come in and thinking about how Jesus even calms the storms in our lives. That he's in control of all things. And it's peaceful and it's amazing. But that's not the way the guys in the boat felt when it happened they were scared. They were were afraid. I mean, they seem to have had a a way of thinking of Jesus, a category, a a, a way of thinking of him that, that it kind of fit that he could do miracles like healings, casting out demons. Those things kind of fit into their understanding of Jesus up until that point. But when he was asleep in a boat, And these guys think they're going to die and they wake him up. Jesus, what are you doing? We're going to die. And he stands up and just goes, stop! And it it doesn't just like the storm begins to roll away, like waves, still. Rain, storm, wind, over. Think about that for just a second. He yelled at the storm and it stopped. And suddenly they're like, Who is this? I mean, before, all the things that we've been a part of and all the things we've seen, we've benefited from him. We've learned from him. We've been cared for by him. We've watched him heal people and do these amazing things that were just so exciting and everything. But now we see an element to his power and his authority that we don't have understanding for anymore. It sounds a lot like these things in Psalm 33. And suddenly they have a little bit of a different picture of who Jesus is. They've been with him for a while. They've seen him do amazing things. People from all over are coming. I mean, you guys got to understand, too, these little villages that he's speaking in as he's going around the Sea of Galilee, this area where he's at right now. I mean, a big village there is, what, a hundred people? And he's drawing crowds by the thousands So people are traveling from everywhere to come see him. It's a big deal. It's a rare deal. Everyone's drawn to him. But all of a sudden, he yells at a storm by rebuke. That's what it means. It means stop. And boom, it's over. And they are afraid. Who is this guy? And what is our proper response to this man knowing what we know now? a heavy question that we should think about maybe a little more often. Maybe we should think about this a little bit more. Look at verse 18 to skip ahead. We're going to take this text a little bit in reverse. Luke 8 verse 18, Jesus says this, take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. He says, be careful. Be careful how you hear me. Be careful how you handle the words that I give. Be careful how you consider me. Now, I was thinking about this. I grew up in church. As many of you guys know, I grew up Southern Baptist back in North Carolina, and I don't remember a time in my life where we didn't go to church. I really don't. There was never a time in my family's history where suddenly we decided, oh, let's try Christianity. Like in my experience, we were always there. I even have early, early, early memories where I can remember, honestly, being dropped off at the nursery and pitching a fit, and my parents arguing about, then what do we do? Should we leave him here or take him into the service with us? I can actually remember that at least one time. So I don't ever remember a time when we weren't at church. So I was trying to do a little bit of math yesterday, and I was trying to think, how many times have I heard the Bible taught? Let's just stick with just sermons. How many sermons or church formal Bible studies have I ever heard in my life? So I tried to do a little bit of math and I try to be kind of conservative. If there's 52 Sundays in a year, I figured, let's say our family was 90% church attendance. And you think, oh, that's insane. No, I'm probably, it's probably more like 97% church attendance with my family growing up. But I'm going to be conservative just to be safe. And let's say that's 90% attendance. That's 47 sermons a year. Add five sermons because of Revival week. Those of you Baptists, you know, revival week, you go every night that week, right? So that's five more sermons. Now we're back to 52. And that's not counting J. Vernon McGee being forced to listen to that on the radio all the time. Amen, church? Okay. Young people don't know who that is. I mean, he's a great teacher, but in a sense, you're also lucky too, because when you're a kid, that was torture. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. So from age, let's say six, Because in that day, you went to Sunday school after church service, so young kids would be in the sanctuary the entire time. So from age 6 to age 18, using those numbers, that's a minimum, absolute minimum of 624 sermons that I sat through. Then you got another 30 camp sermons when you get into junior high and high school. You got Wednesday night services for a grand total of at least 918 sermons that I heard before I finished high school. Now, college wasn't quite as uh, religiously active, let's say, so we'll add another 217 sermons for the time by the time I finished college, but then things kind of came back around, started following Jesus again more I almost said more religiously, that's bad for today's sermon. But anyway, uh, another 234 Sunday sermons, probably around another 195 Wednesday sermons just through my 20s. That brings us to 1,564 sermons that I heard and sat through, minimum. Then I became a pastor. And all of that skyrocketed because now I'm listening to sermons all the time to study. And now I'm preparing and teaching sermons. So I figure by now, I have heard a minimum bare minimum, I have heard a minimum of 2,964 sermons in my life, not counting seminary lectures, morning Bible studies, any of that kind of stuff. 2,964 times that I have sat under the preaching, teaching of the word of God formally. And I wonder what my approach to all of those has been. I mean, like when I was young, it was just like, let's just get this over with, right? ball games later, want to play with my friends outside, kids used to do that, you know, Um, that kind of stuff, just like, let's just get the service over with, that, when I was young there was that, but then there were years of personal revival where I was hungry for all the things that I had seemed to kind of missed when I was younger, Um, other times it's to be entertained, I want to hear a good sermon, or that pastor's funny, or that guy's really insightful. Honestly, a lot of times in recent years, it has been to learn things that I can then come back here and share with you guys. Like, what's been my approach to all those things? Honestly, not nearly enough have I approached the, the receiving, let's say, of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God for me, myself, in the sense that I'm aware, even in that moment, that the real one speaking to me, I don't mean the guy on the stage, I don't mean the mouthpiece, I mean the word of the Lord, the truth that's being handed to me is the word of the same man who said, stop, and the ocean went flat. Like that carries a different authority when you think of it that way. Like not that often have I approached the word, or not as often as I should have, let's say that, have I approached The teaching, the study, even the opening of the word in the moment from the standpoint that I'm about to hear the words of the Lord who once used words to create everything that exists, including me. And that's a different understanding when we understand and contemplate the awe of really who God is and what this miracle of a quote-unquote book is actually is it changes the way you listen to it it changes the purpose of it like not just like oh i want to be blessed not that this is about me but look who is talking to me do you understand the emphasis difference there when we're reminded that this is the lord of creation who speaks and water obeys him water obeys him that makes no sense in our current context and yet it's true remember this is luke A physician, a doctor, and a historian writing these things. And at the beginning of the book of Luke, he says, I'm writing these things that took place so that you may know with certainty what has happened. And he's saying, the water went flat. And these apostles that have been around him the whole time are suddenly going, Who is this man? What is our proper response to him now? We understand a God that benefits us. We understand a God that heals. But this God speaks and water obeys. What is the proper response to him? And then Jesus says in verse 18, take care how you hear him, that it might actually even cost us Now the context here provides us a good example for all of this. The context, the greater story that's going on here in chapter 8 actually helps us. And it also provides the topic for, I'm going to guess, around 200 of those 3,000 sermons that I said I've heard before. Because the context we're coming out of is the parable of the sower. And I'll be honest with you, I was not looking forward to teaching on the parable of the sower because I just did. Like just a few months ago, in a different text, we jumped into the story of the parable of the sower and used that as an analogy or as a, a supplemental text to study something else. So I'm coming into it going, again. And if you grew up in the church, let's be honest for a second. Aren't there some of those stories that you get to and you go, oh, it's that one again? It's not quite as exciting. I mean, Jeremy, last week, he got to teach about the the sinful woman forgiven, pouring oil on the feet. I mean, even Jeremy was talking to me after the sermon, and he's like, man, some stories, they just teach themselves. And I told him straight up, I know, when I saw you were on the schedule for that week, I was a little bit frustrated. (laughs) And then I looked the next week, and I was like, parable of a sower again? But I want you to consider something. Let's look at it slightly differently this morning. And I want you to have a question in the background that's going to help illustrate some of the things Jesus is warning his disciples and warning us about in the background. And here's the question. How much of an emphasis in your life is sharing the gospel with others? How much of a priority do you currently in your life or historically throughout your life place on being a witness of Jesus Christ to people that don't know Jesus Christ? Think about that for a second, okay? Now in this story, Jesus is teaching. He's got more crowds coming around him, and he begins to teach in parables. Um, Of the 30-something parables that take place in the scriptures, around 19 of them are done in this particular area in Galilee. This is a very common place for him to teach in that way. And if you've been to that Galilee area, it makes sense. It's a very fertile valley. It's very green. There's farmland. There's all these things. So for him to come and use the parable of a sower, where he's talking about farming, planting, growing of plants, then it kind of makes sense that this is the way he's going to teach He was a good teacher and he used the things around him to help people understand truths about Scripture and truths about God. And so he gives this story about a man who comes in with some seed and he scatters the seed. And he gives four different places in the text where the seed landed, giving four different results when the seed tried or did come to fruition. It says, A sower went out to sow his seed as he sowed. This is in verse 5 of chapter 8. Some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and birds of air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you're listening, If you're willing to understand, pay attention and hear me. Now they're sitting there going, really? About grass seed? What does that mean? And so his disciples, verse 9, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But because these have no root, they believe for a while. And in time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches, and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So Jesus gives this parable. The guys don't really understand it. Not everybody has really understood what he was talking about. Maybe some of these people who came by the thousands to hear him maybe traveled all day, and they got there, and they're like, he hasn't tell me he's like a farming teacher. I just, I walked all day to get here, man. Come on. This is a way, like people not all understanding what's going on. And the disciples pull him aside and they're probably thinking, Jesus, like you're even frustrating some people. Like nobody understands. We don't even understand. We've been with you for days. What is this all about? And Jesus like, it, it's actually kind of a secret. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you and here's what it means. And so think of that with regards to their, their response. Oh, Oh, it's a secret. There were all these people around, and you only wanted us to understand that. So you told this story. Now you've helped us. Sweet. We're in the inner circle. We're in the club. We're the good grass. And you were just telling us in code about all those other people out there who are the bad grass. Whew, I'm glad we're the good grass. Awesome. And so then, what does Jesus say in verse 16? No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given, and the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has, will be taken away. This is a picture of a lamp. If you've ever heard the story here before about the lamp and put on the lampstand, this is what they call a lamp in that culture. It'd be filled with oil, the wick would be on this side, and it would burn. And so what they would say is this would go on a lampstand, which is actually a little, almost like a windowsill on the side of the house, or the side of the inside of the room, so it'd be able to light up the room at nighttime for everyone's in there. And he says, hey, look, nobody takes this, lights the fire, and then sticks it into their bed. That's not going to go real well. No one does that. And no one lights this so that they can then hide the light and make things dark for everyone else in the room. That's not the purpose of it either. You light something, light has been given so that it might illuminate the rest of the room all around. Therefore, people who lit it or people who didn't light it, everyone has stands to benefit from the light that exists in that room. So go back to thinking about this. The disciples. Oh, it's a secret. Nobody knows, okay, shh, secret code in our club. We won't tell anybody. Jesus is like, no, that's not the point at all. Yes, the point of the story does show that there's going to be places that receive the word of God and aren't going to respond to it. Yes, it shows that there's going to be people that receive the word of God temporarily, but then when life gets hard and things get difficult, they're going to bail on this whole Christianity thing and go somewhere else. Yes, it shows that some people are going to try to squeeze Christianity in with all the other things that they value just as much in their life, and it's just going to get choked out and go away. But you have been given the light so that you will go share this with the people who don't know that. The purpose of it was to understand that, hey, not everybody gets this. But then Jesus warns them right then. Hey, but listen, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. In verse 18, take care how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And the one who has not, more will be taken away. Listen, the word of God is not given to us. If I can go back to my thinking through my even history of hearing sermons and all these kind of things in my life, what's the purpose when Jesus reveals something to me? When God gives me, for whatever reason, gives me understanding of some passage or some scripture or some knowledge about him, what's the purpose of that? It's not to entertain me. It's not primarily to benefit me. It's not so that I check off another thing on my religious to-do list and feel good about myself. It's because the God of all creation, the one described in Psalm 33, who speaks things into existence, has chosen for some reason to bless me with his word so that I would carry his word and use it to illuminate the people around me. It's it's not just for personal comfort in a morning devotion but it's marching orders from the Lord of the earth that we would carry this light to people all around us. I've heard that passage for years and years and years of my life and never attempted to apply it in that in that way. And Jesus says, "Be careful how you hear me." Be careful, Jeff. Because you can hear that stuff over and over and over. And you think you've got it. You think you have understanding of it. And over time, it actually might be taken away because your heart becomes hardened as you're not doing the thing that I've given you to do. You just have understanding. You think you have it, but you're not doing it, and so you're losing it. And we know that that's what happens, right? Because I used to speak Spanish. Right? And then I don't use it. and I don't speak Spanish anymore. I speak just a little bit of Spanish, just a little bit. Dos tortas de puracane de res, salsa especial, lechuga, queso, peponillos, y cebolla en un pan con semilla de junhali. You know what that is? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, (laughs) onions on a sesame seed bun. That's it. (laughs) How many of you studied music when you were a kid? How many of you still play music now that you're an adult? If you don't use it, what happens? You lose it. And when Jesus says, be careful how you hear me, the words he uses are actually a strong warning. Guys who are puffing yourselves up because you have understanding of things that other people don't know, be careful. Be careful. You're gonna think because you know things, you're safe. But the honest truth is, church, Church is a dangerous place for those who are not willing to actually follow the word of God. It's a dangerous place. Because it can be that place where we start to feel so good about ourselves. We can make ourselves feel holy and righteous. It can become the once a week cleansing for all the rest of the junk that we did the rest of the week. It can become all of those things. It can even become a place where we puff ourselves up with our knowledge of the word. But we're not actually doing anything. And Jesus says, oh church, be careful. Because even what you have, you will lose. You'll lose the understanding of it. You'll lose the application of it. Your heart will become hardened to the continual call of God, just as Pharaoh's was. Let my people go. Or more literally, it's more like Mel Gibson, give me back my son. Nope. Give me back my son. Nope. Give me back my son. And as you read the narrative, what happens His heart is continually hardened to the point that he caused devastation and loses his own child and then dies even himself in judgment of God. You go, but that's the enemy. No, but Jesus tells his disciples, be careful, take care how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given, but for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Now, I just want to call you church, and I've Myself as well. Us. If God has given us something to do. Today is the day to stop hardening our hearts and do it. Whatever that is. There is always a reason to not follow and obey Jesus. There's always something in the way. There's always something else you can do. There's always a better time. But Jesus gives stern warning in this text. Be careful how you hear me. Be careful how you receive these things. And then, in in the beauty of God's uh, um, providence, he gives us a phenomenal example of maybe one of the biggest potential distractions from actually following Jesus that there can be. Because look what happens right then. Verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, there's some context to this that's given to us in Mark chapter 3. In Mark 3 it says, earlier, right before this moment, he went home and a crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. In other words, to arrest him, to grab or take him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So here's what's happening. They're in these Galilee villages, these small places, and crowds are amassing. They're coming from all over the place, which is insane. Like there is something epic going on in this, in this region that is getting everyone's attention. And from the perspective of his family, things are getting absolutely out of control. And so he's teaching and all these crowds come and he gets done teaching. He's like, oh, I'm going to go home for the day. Goes to his house and so many people flock to his house and follow him there that he can't even eat. Like he, he just cannot get away from all the people that are there. He cannot keep them away from him. And his family's watching and at best they're going, if we don't save him from himself, he's going to go mad. Because he can't keep doing what he's doing. And at worst, they think he's already there. Who does he think he is? Who does this guy, the things he's, okay, the things that he's doing, but what's your end game in this, Jesus? Who do you really think you are? And so they decide then, we've got to save him from himself. So Jesus goes on teaching. He does this parable of the sower and he's talking with his disciples and everything's being explained. Then he's warning them, be careful how you hear me. And as that's happening, verse 19 starts with then, right then, his mother and his brothers come in and they come to take him away. And they're like, hey, uh, your, your family's out here and they, can you, Jesus, come on, can we have some family time now? They'd like to see you. They'd like to talk to you. Now, granted, I'm sure Jesus understands what their actual motives are, but his response to them is, guys, My family, my mother and brothers, are those who hear and do, keeping perfectly in line with what he is currently teaching his disciples right then, those who hear and do the will of God. So what is he saying in this? Now listen, please do not misunderstand me. Jesus clearly cares for family. The Bible teaches us how to care for and love family better than anything in the history of mankind ever has. God uses the analogy of the family to help us understand how we've been adopted into his family. The Bible upholds our ability to care for and lead the family as a prerequisite before you can ever even be a leader in the church. You have to be able to take care of your family before you can take care of a church. Jesus even arranges for the care of his mother while he's dying on the cross to make sure that she was tended and taken care of. Nobody understands the importance importance, value of family, and places as much emphasis on the care and, and loving your family than Jesus does. But what is he saying here? Unmistakably, Jesus is saying spiritual ties supersede genetic ties. That the spiritual family is more important than our actual genetic birth family. And yet, this is probably the number one reason why people already inside the church find reasons to delay or not follow Jesus in different areas of their life. I can't right now. I mean, the kids have this going on and this going on, and I got this going on. And I, I, I can't do that right now. I can't get all missional like you guys are talking about because, I mean, I'm on mission just to exist with our family schedule. So I'm just trying to do this stuff here. But I'm telling you, when things slow down, when summer comes around, when da-da-da-da-da, but right now I got to do this kind of stuff. And and here's the truth. Family is so incredibly important and secondary. Some of you right now are just, he's about to put a guilt trip on me, and I love my family. Hear me out. Hang with me some more. Family is incredibly important, and it's so secondary. Secondary. And what a clever temptation of Satan to use something that is so important and such an incredible gift from God and use it to delay people from actually following the God who gave them the gift. To distract with the gift so that we don't look past and actually follow the giver. This is just one of the examples, but it's the one that the text gives us today. I can't serve Jesus today. I have family responsibilities to take care of. Well, Jesus once said, let the dead bury their dead. He said, come follow me. I can't right now. We just had a family member die and we have to bury them. And his response was, let the dead bury their dead. You come with me. That's a strong statement and doesn't sound very Christian, does it? If I said that to any of you, you would change churches, right? You would. I can't dedicate time to Jesus right now. I have family obligations. Jesus said, if you cannot take up your cross and follow me, you're not only not worthy of me, but you cannot be my disciple. That sounds so different than so much of American evangelicalism. I am not, by the way, talking about forsaking family for the sake of ministry. I am not saying that then let's be absent from family. Let's, let's get rid of all of our obligations and do, we don't have to worry about anything and our family is just going to have to suffer and Jesus will take care of them. I'm going to go do my whatever thing. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the temptation to make idols out of our family where family always comes before God does. That's what I'm talking about. Where we, we are more uh, um, worried about making sure that our kids have this, this, this than actually responding to the actual given word of God and calls he actually places in our life it happens a lot it happens all the time jesus understands more than any of us the needs and importance of family but our duty to jesus takes precedence over everything else and the reason that that has to be that way is because that's actually what's best for our family because what's the whole point What's the overall point, the end result of of having family, of having children, of raising young kids? Like, what's the whole point of that in the end? There's a book out there, if some of you want to read it, it came out a few years ago. It's called Almost Christian. And in this book, it was actually a sociological study of sorts. And the purpose was to try to figure out why so many young people are walking away from the church. Why so many young people grow up in, in the church just like I did and then they go to college or they go wherever and then they don't really place much priority on their faith and over time their faith is just sort of gone. And the primary thing that they came out with, and it wasn't even close, I don't remember the percentages and I just didn't have the time to go dig the book back out, but, but the overwhelming reason, and I mean by miles, that young people don't hold on to their faith later is because they never saw it as something valuable in the lives of their parents. And it's so easy to go, oh, man, I, but I want to make sure that my daughter uh, gets her soccer opportunities and gets to do this, and, and my son, I want to make sure he gets to do all this, and I want to make sure I do all this stuff, And but what can end up happening is we, re, we don't even realize the sacrifice we're actually causing our family to make without understanding it. And in the meantime, we're teaching them that sports are more important, even though they're never going to pay you back, that your education and your ability to make a living later and to have money and comfort, all the things the Bible warns us about, that's more important of actually training, and getting rid of that, even though those things will never last and certainly won't get you into the kingdom of God. We're going to, we'll teach them inadvertently that there's all sorts of reasons to put God third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or not even worry about him at all. But hope that we get enough of an emphasis that it actually takes. But, you know, that's what, uh, one are those things, vaccinations are? When you get a vaccination from a disease, they actually give you just enough of the disease to make sure you don't get the disease. And they found out that's what's happening. That young people didn't see a priority or a value on that. It's not, we would love to believe, oh, the issue is the liberal universities, that we send people off from our houses, we send the kids off to school, and these liberal professors get them and mess them up, and that's why they're walking away from their faith. But the studies show that is absolutely, categorically not true. Kids value faith that they've seen parents value, they depend on the Lord that they watched their family serve. And so, if kids watch their families serve business, Or relationships or jobs or money or whatever it is, that's the gods they're more likely to serve when they get to that place. And the primary call for us as parents or as family members is to help our family walk with Jesus. I mean, family is such a gift. Such a gift. I get to take my daughters snowboarding tomorrow. They have some school program. I can't believe they have these things now, but like once a, once a week for like a month, the kids don't have to go to school on Monday and we all go snowboarding. And it's like paid for. It's amazing. I get to go snowboard with my kids tomorrow. It's gonna be amazing. And I love it. It's phenomenal. But those memories won't matter as much as where are they in their walk with Jesus. And I can, even as Jesus tells me, be careful how you hear, Jeff. I can even present the words of Jesus as being as not that important. Which is then, hey, be careful how you share, Jeff. Be careful how you teach him. Because they're going to follow you. They're going to listen to you. And look, that's just one of the examples. Mark eight thirty six goes on to say, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Family is a gift, a blessing, a treasure, but it is not God. Your career is so important. It is. Your career is important. But it will never save you. And one day, someone else will have your job. One day, one way or the other. Your relationships are so amazing and they're such a gift and they're so temporary. It always freaks people out when I tell them, and honestly, it still freaks me out some too, that there won't be marriage in heaven. I got to just trust that God knows there's going to be something much, much better there because I love my wife and I love my family, and I can't imagine being in heaven and not calling her my wife. That just seems weird, right? But it's temporary. The relationship's temporary. And it's given to us for the purpose of serving God and spreading his gospel. And how clever for Satan to take something so important, like jobs or like the ability to provide for our family or any of those kinds of things. Things that are good and then put them into an emphasis and tempt us in such a way in our life that they become ultimate. That they become the actual hurdle that prevents us from following Jesus. There's so many of them. So this is what I would just say this morning: What is God telling you to do? What's He called you to do? Is it involvement in your community, or a church community group, or being part of the church, whether that be attending or serving and giving? Is it sharing the gospel with your neighbors? Is it just a simple call to spend time with him, but you're just too busy because work starts early? Is it the study of Scripture? Or God forbid, is it a sin that you're holding on to? And that's become the hurdle. Any of them can fit the same example where Jesus would say, be careful how you hear me. Don't harden your heart. Do you know the more you say no to something God is calling you to, it makes it harder and harder later to say yes? Do you understand that? That's what he's saying. Be careful how you hear me. There's a verse, I should have shared it earlier. Hebrews 4.2 says this. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That word faith in there where it says the words were not united by faith with those who listened, it, means, it doesn't mean just simple intellectual agreement. It, it means a belief that causes action. In fact, other translations put it this way. Can you put the other version up? For we have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. As I read these things, I go, man. And I think about Psalm 33. And then I think about just after all of this, they get in a boat, and this man who's teaching these things. And you've got to think, some of these things must have been spinning in their heads a little bit. Like, what is he doing? Family's important in Hebrew culture. What what is Jesus doing? Mary's so sweet. How could anybody tell Mary to go away? Has anyone met her? She's amazing. And then they get in a boat, and there's a storm, and they're freaking out, and he stands up and goes, stop! And and then they're going, oh, man. This isn't just some teaching guy. This isn't just some guy who benefits us. This This is God. This is Psalm 33. This is the guy water obeys him. So church, what's God telling you? What's he been calling you to maybe for years to do? What are the things, even good things, that we have the temptation to put in front of our ability to serve God that become distractions to or become reasons not to serve God? What are they? Or for some of you, How long are you going to keep putting off even giving your life to Jesus in the first place? Because it's only going to get harder. And Jesus says, be careful how you hear me. Be careful. Or even that which you think you have will be taken away. Will you guys bow your heads for a moment? I'm going to ask Sam to come up. Enclose us in a song. But I just want to take five minutes. So we don't hear Jesus say something like this. We don't see this in the word. And then not take opportunity to respond to it. But to do some serious soul searching. And say okay Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me. What has he called you to do? What has he been calling you to do? Who's you call, who is he calling you To speak to? Who's he calling you to befriend, to love, to be a a witness of Christ to him? What sin are you still holding on to as the reason that you're not all in with Christ right now? And why do you keep putting that off? Church, be careful how you hear him. And I got to tell you guys, even just as the pastor who sits up here, I can't tell you how many times it starts with those good things like. My kid's on a soccer team and they play every Sunday. It's not much I can do, but I'll be back in June. And I got to tell you, I watch those gaps get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then those people are gone. It happens all the time. And I think the word this morning and the spirit of God this morning is pleading with us. Be careful how you hear him. He is the Lord of all creation who speaks and water obeys him. He's the one who frustrates the plans of kingdoms. He's the one who desperately loves you and even crafted your heart. But sin is real and temptations are not just to trip us up, but to destroy us. And he wants what is best for his kids. So he's calling you right now. Be careful how you hear him. And if you're here this morning and you've still never even given your heart to Jesus in the first place, please be careful how you hear this message. We're just going to take a few minutes to to worship, to contemplate, to pray. If you're in that category and you want, man, I'll be right down here. You just come down here and pray with me. But today's the day. It's time to start putting it off, to grow in faith, the faith that obeys. Lord, will you search our hearts, minister to our souls, teach and lead your people for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.